0: Donna Bullock, a representative from the city of Philadelphia, understands the value of a good education. She's a graduate of Temple Law School and a member of the JSU School, an independent Catholic elementary and middle school in the city. We talked about education, of course, but also about criminal justice reform, and I learned what environmental justice means as well. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I am in downtown Harrisburg at the uh, Federal Tap House. Uh, with State Representative Donna Bullock, who uh, represents the 195th District in uh, North and West of Philadelphia. Uh, Representative Bullock, thanks for joining me here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm glad to, for you to join me. We, we, <laughs> we tried this many times, whether it was snowstorms or sickness. Uh, we finally get to sit down, and I'm really looking forward to this. Because, and a great
1: day to do it. Yeah,
0: so. in fact, it is uh, much better than all those days that uh, we were supposed to get together. So uh, here we are. Um, And uh, uh, we want to get to know you a bit better, and you and I haven't had uh, any interaction really Mm -hmm. since you've been in Harrisburg, Uh, but I know that there are a number of areas and issues that uh, you're passionate about, that I'm passionate about as well, so I look forward to talking about uh, those things, particularly in education and criminal justice reform, but before we get into uh, the issues... Um, tell us about yourself. Well, Where did you grow up, uh, your family, and uh, then we'll talk about why you got into this business of politics.
1: Sure. I grew up in New Jersey, some originally a Jersey girl. Uh, grew up in a very small family, myself, my mother, my grandmother, um, and we struggled a little bit. So we, we you know, had to seek assistance from various resources and one of those uh, resources was a local soup kitchen in my hometown and so we would uh, visit this soup kitchen on a regular basis uh, but my grandmother had a rule I had to just not come for the mill I had to also be a part of the operation I had to give back I had to mm-hmm. volunteer so even at the age of six seven and eight I was Um, given this sense of responsibility and this sense of service, and so I would have my meal and then I would help out in that soup kitchen, either by serving an elder or cleaning um, after others or washing dishes, and so um, that sort of um, mindset that no matter how small you are, no matter how little you have, you can be of service to others, and so that has really guided me through everything and had a great opportunity to go to college, go to law school, which brought me to Philadelphia. And then once I was in law school and in Philly, I used that same sort of model to give back and used my law degree to give back to others, worked at community legal services, fell in love with Philly, fell in love with a Philly guy, (laughs) made Philly home. Um, And it's been a great opportunity for me to use my law degree. I worked at community legal services, worked at a small law firm representing nonprofits. uh, And that was a great experience for me because going to law school, I thought I was going to change the world. And I got really great grades in courses like tax law and corporate law. And I was like, how the heck do you change the world with taxes? (laughs) But I realized that there's these great organizations and corporations, nonprofit corporations, that serve the community just like that soup kitchen that I grew up with, just like after-school programs that were a part of my life growing up or other programs, mental health services that supported my mother through her journey. And they were providing services in a community, but had to have had some legal challenges, whether it's complying with tax laws or other uh, laws. And as a lawyer, I was able to help those nonprofits continue to do great work and to serve others. So that's been very rewarding.
0: So, so we just spent through a lot of your life uh, yeah. there. And it's great. Of course, uh, love tends to uh, drag us into mm-hmm. uh, areas we never thought we would be. Uh, Philadelphia, I guess, with uh, falling in love with a guy and and, uh, and the city, yes. uh, certainly a lot to fall in love with. Um, where, where was it that uh, kind of you're a political bug? entered into your life. Was that early on? Were you paying attention to politics early on uh, in Uh, your life?
1: Not really politics, but I would always say I was a leader. You know, I was the girl in high school you didn't like because I wore heels and a suit saying, I am in control. And I ran for every student government opportunity that possibly came my way. But, you know, going to law school and starting a career and starting a family, those sort of ideals and concepts of running for office faded away and I was very happy at this point in my career I was working for Council President Darrell Clark in the city of Philadelphia as his special advisor and legal counsel for me it was great I was able to be involved help others use my law degree also somewhat be in charge by giving advice to the person that really was in charge Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, I would say that when this seat became available folks started to look at me and say, Donna, we always thought you can be in, in, in politics, you could be elected office, you are a leader naturally, you should really consider this. And, and uh, this was a special, there was, a special, was a special election. election. and yeah, yeah. 2015. Okay. And Matt, you may know, there's statistics out there that say you have to ask a woman seven times to run. You probably <laughs> had asked me about 14 times to run. Um, but my colleagues, I know we can ask Tim and Tom and maybe once and they're ready to go. But it took a couple of nudging and, and some asking and I had to look at my family. My boys at that time were four and seven and I said, Well, they can tie their shoes, they can go to the bathroom and aim most times. Yeah. Um, they can <laughs> press the microwave button, they will they will live if I had to spend a couple of days in Harrisburg. Uh, and it's probably the husband so you had that I was to get, most concerned you, yeah, about. Yeah, you had
0: to get three votes, but one in particular was most the important. Husband, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. And he was survived too. And so, um, but you know, they were very supportive of mom and, and wife running and um, and so I decided to run that year in, in August of 2015. It was a um, hot, very hot summer, but we, we were successful in that election, and I was sworn in on my mother's birthday. So it was really um, a great opportunity for me to get back. Was she able to join you she for your She did you, join. Nice. She was here, um, and Speaker Terzai wished her happy birthday from the rostrum, and so it was a great day for her to see My journey from that little girl in the soup kitchen to Mm -hmm. now being a House representative.
0: And so uh, uh, early on, uh, as you were forming your political philosophy, uh, uh, obviously uh, uh, we know you're a Democrat today. But uh, was there something in your life that said, you know what, as you learned about uh, politics and policy and said, I'm definitely a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. (laughs) uh, uh, Was was there anything in your life that uh, kind of shaped your political uh, viewpoints? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't think party affiliation was ever a question that I would not be a Democrat. Uh Everyone around me um, were Democrats. My city, both where I was raised and where I live now, were very heavily Democratic cities. And so um, I think those values are very much aligned in my own personal values and also speaking for very vulnerable populations like those um, who may be homeless or hungry or children um, have always been cornerstone of, of my career and of my service to make sure that I'm be, I'm using my voice to help others.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what are the policy issues that you are most interested in that uh, kind of get you up every morning and says, you know what, I'm going to fight for this. Uh, what, what are those, uh, those, those policy interests? Right.
1: Um, I would say I wake up every morning and I look at my sons and I say, what are the things that are going to impact their lives today and tomorrow? And those are the things that wake me up every morning. And so, yes, they do include education. They do include the environment and making sure the environment is clean. They have clean air and clean water, not just today, but in the future. Um, looking at issues at, for them as young black boys in America, knowing that criminal justice reform and gun violence um, is going to be uh, a a crossroads for them, whether regardless of the, how much I try to protect them, that this is something that they would be concerned about, something I'm concerned about as a as a mother of two young black boys. Um, those are things those are the issues that I wake up every morning and say, How can I make this world a better place not just for my two sons but for the other boys that they play with at the playground, um, and the girls that. They're not running so much from anymore at <laughs> the playground, but, you know, just really make sure that we, we are leaving this place better than we found mm-hmm. it. I really believe that is my obligation and responsibility as a legislator, but just as an adult.
0: Now, one of the areas that where our interests cross uh, is the Jesu School. Uh, oh. I've been through Jesu uh, and an amazing uh, little oasis there in the community that's providing for Uh, a great number of kids Mm -hmm. and uh, just where my passions are and I serve on a uh, a board in the city of Harrisburg where we're helping kids with scholarships and, and whatnot. Uh, where did, how did j Sue enter into your life? And talk about what that has right. meant uh, for you and your family.
1: So j Zoo has an, an amazing history in North Philadelphia. Yeah. It's been around for quite some time. And even after the church that it was associated with closed down, the j Zoo community made a commitment to the surrounding neighborhood and say, we are going to stay open as an independent school Um with Jesuit values, and provide this quality education to those families um, in that neighborhood. it It is amazing for me to see the work that they do at that school and the students and the success that they have. Um, how did I decide to send my children there? I very much wanted to send my children to a public school. Um, Philadelphia has its challenges when it comes to public schools and public education. I'm a big proponent of public education, but as I started to look at my own neighborhood schools, I struggled a little bit with that decision. Um, I spoke at the time I was working in city council and I spoke to a lot of the staff there, the secretaries, the accountants, and just everyday folk, the security guards. And I asked, where did you send your children who are now grown or in college? And um, Jay Zook just kept coming back mm. up. It mm. just kept coming back up. And so we, uh, my husband and I visited the school and we were impressed with the leadership. We were impressed with these students. and. My ch- my, both my children have been there since pre-K, and they have had a great experience. You um, know it's a school that I was so committed to that I eventually decided to actually join the board of directors. So not only am I a parent, but um, board of directors making sure that we have great opportunities for uh, all of our children in Philadelphia. And I think j is one of those options while yeah. we continue to support public education.
0: And, indeed, well. I, obviously, uh, most kids are in public schools and we need to make sure that those are our options and uh, uh, good opportunities mm. uh, for all kids. Uh, what I do find about uh, j is that uh, uh, there it is where you you, you don't see high-performing schools, but they're able to do amazing things with the same population uh, that may not be as successful in a neighboring uh, school what is the difference that you see happening at Jeju versus other neighborhood uh, public schools
1: i think a lot of it has to do with resources um, a lot of our public schools are under-resourced cuz you're absolutely right the Jesu does not cherry pick students it doesn't look for the you know the best students or the students that are testing high or the students that don't have Um, other special education needs those students are just as present in that school Um, they're students from that neighborhood or have other connections to that neighborhood maybe their parents grew up in that neighborhood Um, for me it's been resources leadership so the leadership of the school is very key to that and making sure that the leadership feels supported and sometimes in our public schools the leadership may not have that same support Um, and there's a community there's a community of alumni there's a community of parents Um, A community of volunteers and donors who are very much committed to that school success. And I think that family environment, that community environment, and just um, surrounding our children with all of those support systems makes a big difference. Um, And I'll be quite blunt with you, you know, as a um, person of color, person that has been able to achieve some success and make some gains, I struggled with the the ideal of possibly sending my children to a a private school that did not look like them. Mm. And what and most private schools if I'm you're middle class and you're able to choose a private school and you have the resources and the opportunity to make that choice and pay for it for your children, they are predominantly white for the most part. And when you look at Jesus school, it's 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 not a community, it's yes. It's a community. Yeah, yeah. It it is reflective of the community that it surrounds it. The student body looks like my children and so they they're not necessarily gonna walk into a school where they don't see people that look like them. They see that um, throughout, you know, just not just the student body but the staff as well, and that is um, that's powerful in mm-hmm. itself. For mm-hmm. your children to see themselves and their teacher, to see themselves and their classmates, to see themselves in their school community it builds confidence. Um, and it was the kind of school environment that we wanted our children to go to.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Jesus spends less than the local public school on a per pupil basis. Um, I, I, I could be incorrect, but I think the vast majority of inner-city Catholic schools are spending significantly less uh, than the public schools are themselves. But it, it, whether that's correct or not, yeah. what, what would you say are the, the biggest—why can't we replicate that? Why doesn't that get replicated at the local public school, the environment that's created there where you're serving the same, you know, population— um, but you're having a much greater success with kids matriculating on to the next level and actually uh, having the skills mm-hmm. to succeed going off to college and so forth. What what do you see as sort of the, the why can't we do more of that? Why aren't there more Jesus in the public mm-hmm. sphere in our inner cities than what we have right now?
1: I think it's definitely possible to do that in the public schools. Um, What we've done to our public school system is that we've under-resourced it for so many years. It's really hard to just throw money into a system that is so underfunded right now, one. And then the additional regulations um, and some of the challenges of managing unions and and staffing and um, what that looks like. And and right now, I think our public schools are struggling a bit with um, some of the most... um, neediest populations that remain that remain in the schools um needing more and more dollars. And this is why the fair funding formula is very important to me and to the school district of Philadelphia, and I think school districts across the Mm -hmm. Commonwealth, whether they're rural, urban, or um, in between, that they're not getting the the dollars they need to educate the population. Because that, that
0: funding formula actually starts to attach dollars to specific needs, whether it's poverty or learning needs, right? So you're starting to actually educate, or I guess direct money, based upon need those needs Uh, English as a second language for
1: example if you have uh, students that need that additional amount of uh, attention then you need to be able to have the certified teachers in the classroom that can provide that kind of resource or those skill set and teaching that the students need then we can actually teach but you know a lot of our students are coming into the classroom with you know whether it's they're hungry from the night before or whether they're dealing with mental health issues or trauma or they're just having some learning difficulties but we can't even get past that because we don't have the resources to do that and once we get everybody to a level playing field I think we can have um, much more success and I, I, private schools and small schools like Jay Zoo have the opportunity to to address those needs there tend to be smaller school environments smaller teacher staff ratios all those things can help improve the school environment and the um, the opportunities that they are able to provide. Yeah,
0: I've long uh, been a proponent of, of smaller schools. Uh, so many times people are talking about, we need more consolidations, so, but uh, bigger is not better when it comes to education. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's not, you know, and so I think it's important to have those neighborhood schools, yeah. those small school communities. And if you have to have a big school to have school communities within the school so that you can, pull students to the side and have those communities where they can make connections with teachers and make connections with guidance counselors and make connections with their peers. I strongly believe that students learn from each other. And so um, having that diversity in the classroom as far as education or learning levels, um, mm-hmm. student with um, certain uh, learning difficulties can learn from other students, but they can also teach those other students as well um, if they see things differently, if they have a different perspective. And... Um, or being a tutor to that student helps you understand the material even better, helps you become a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things that I really appreciate about Jesuit as well is that it's you have the educational component, and they do well there, but there's also the character building um, and the values. It was a Jesuit school, so they have some values that are in play, and um, you know those values are aligned with our own family values. You heard my story about service growing up, mm-hmm. and so my children are learning about service through the Jesuit um which and I well. was looking
0: at some of the numbers that Jesu puts out, uh, which is interesting. And a lot of inner-city Catholic schools are this way. Only seven percent are actually Catholic that are attending, uh, <laughs> and so and serving lots of kids from from various, diverse backgrounds. Yes, we even yes.
1: have some students there of the Muslim faith in our school, and so it's a very diverse student population. And more or less, it's more geographical of our school they represent as, or or teach as far as um, or compared to faith based. Um, but some of the values are shared across faith, you know, mm-hmm. and I think they do a great job of re- re- recognizing the diversity of the student population um, when it comes to faith and incorporating that and talking about um, the sort of overlapping and crossroads of all of those faiths or non-faiths that may be there. If you still may... You don't necessarily have to have a certain faith to not believe that you should treat people with respect, right? And that's just a value that I think um, transcends, transcends yeah, yes, right? Yeah. Treat other people how you want to be right. treated.
0: Right. Well, so uh, while you've made the choice of Jezu for your kids, there are lots of other families that are choosing uh, charter schools. That's a big popular option in the city of Philadelphia, and I know there are upwards, of, I think, thirty or 40,000 Uh, families that are on waiting lists to get, Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you see that as part of kind of the the education ecosystem? And and do you think that those are are options that need to be expanded further in the city of Philadelphia for parents and kids? Right.
1: I don't think at this point that we need to expand charters in the city of Philadelphia at this moment. What I think we need to do is strengthen the charters that exist and strengthen the public schools that exist. Because some of the charter schools are amazing. Some of the public schools are amazing. Not all of them. Uh, traditional public schools mm-hmm. when I say public I'm because yeah. charters are also right. public but when we look at those and then private schools and Catholic schools, we have a very strong educational ecosystem as you would say in Philadelphia with all of these various options it's looking at those options and saying how do we create a, a strong diverse Uh, educational system that gives options to all the parents that are there and for those that don't have the resources that they can still count on the public school system to do a great job whether it be charter or or traditional public schools and uh, once we do that once we strengthen the existing system then we can look at expansion of other options.
0: So who, who's who's the we? I guess that's where yeah, I always I, go. You know, who's the we who's that the has we? to do that, right? Because for, from my perspective, it's when parents get involved and mm-hmm. when we actually allow for the supply to meet the demand, meaning there is pent-up demand. You got parents that are saying, the public school system doesn't work for me. That's why they're on these waiting lists mm-hmm. in charter schools that to me, that is it's that competition it is, that ends up spurring yeah. uh, innovation. and. It does. Yeah.
1: And in Philadelphia, though, we um, we just elected a new school or decided to have right? our own school board and it was appointed by our mayor. And they're they're at work. They're looking at those charter schools that are working well and they want to look at how do we expand those existing charter schools and give them additional seats, but then looking at those who aren't doing well and and shut them down should should that be the response and i think we have responsibility to make sure we're doing that um for traditional public schools too and that's been happening we've had some closures in the last couple of years because of performance Uh, um well because of choice right because students weren't going to those schools and then so they had underpopulation. they weren't meeting the i mean too too few students in a school building that just didn't make sense to keep those buildings open so that kind of choice does happen right if parents are making a choice to not go to a public school and then that public school has 100 students when it should be 500, 600 students, the school district has a, a, a decision to make there. And so over the last couple of years, they have had some some closures, some some consolidations were necessary. Um, and so that is happening, has happened. There's been a couple of stages of that happening. and um, But there is always that challenge of, of balancing the charter schools because we all know that this, it's a very complex sort of calculation Mm -hmm. right if you expand charter schools how does that impact the traditional public schools because the brick and mortar still exists; they still have to keep the lights on whether there's 200 students in that building or 500 students in that building and then when is the breaking point of when you cannot longer keep that public school open or Mm -hmm. how can you change that traditional public school I've seen in my district parents are making choices whether they are you have some families that are a mixed bag What I mean, they look at what is the best situation for for this particular child. So they will have one child in a Catholic school, one child in a Um, charter public Mm -hmm. school and another child in a traditional public school. I have
0: one that's homeschooled and one that's a public school. Exactly. So
1: So (laughs) parents and families make the decision that is right for their family Mm -hmm. and right for that specific child. Um, The other thing that I've seen in my district is parents taking ownership of their neighborhood public school and getting involved in that neighborhood public school and saying I'm going to make this the public school that it that we deserve to have in our community that my child deserves, but every other child deserves and so um, they've raised money to bring their libraries back they've raised money to bring violins to their school and all kinds of amazing things that I've seen parents really get together and say this is what we want to do and that's you know whether it's in that traditional public school and it's which is great but also in some of our other school options as well where that really can make a difference. I think j mm-hmm. it's where it makes a difference, that community of parents and alumni that are very much engaged in a part of the school. When you get that same sort of support system around a neighborhood public school, you can have the same yeah. outcomes. No,
0: I totally agree, totally agree. And, I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about education. Did, well, one, that was my first career in teaching. But I also recognize, uh, and the, the saying we have at the Joshua Group here in, in Harrisburg, is that education is the best anti-poverty program Uh, And when I look at uh, kind of the other uh, two largest areas of the state budget, other than education, the other two are human services and our corrections, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, and what's the common denominator amongst a lot of people that end up being trapped in those is a lack of a good education. Uh, And you'd mentioned earlier just your uh, interest in criminal justice reform. And that seems to be an area that we've seen over the last few years, a lot of bipartisan uh, support for changing how we uh, deal with our corrections, recognizing that uh, 90% of the people coming in the front door of our uh, prisons are, are coming back in our community. Yes, and and mm-hmm. so uh, we need to make sure that we're equipping them with the things that they need to be successful uh, when they exit. Uh, but also giving them the opportunity to, uh, uh, be, I guess, be forgiven, mm-hmm. right, for mm-hmm. the things that uh, that they paid for and the things, uh, you know, their debt to society, right. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of those areas that you've become passionate about, right. where you've where you've already seen success and the things you're leading on.
1: So you you probably know a lot about the work that my colleagues, Representative Sheryl Delosier and Jordan Harris, have worked on in regards to clean slate, and that's a. a Clear example of bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. What we recognize is that. Right,
0: explain that real quick, sure. just for listeners. Clean yeah.
1: slate allows folks that have a criminal record to claim that record, mm-hmm. right, so that they can actually apply for a job or apply for housing
0: and, and these are just like these are more small smaller, things that right. happened a long time ago and you haven't done anything wrong right. it's kind of that prevents you from getting a job or because you have to say yes I had uh, right. I was arrested or something and like that
1: yeah. right small nonviolent um, misdemeanor uh, usually uh, offenses that end up on someone's record and unfortunately whether you've been convicted or not a lot of time the arrest just mm, shows up mm. and an employer may not understand these records when they get them back and they just see something came up i don't understand yep. it not I'm even just, gonna deal with i don't want to deal right, with yeah. it yeah. um and we've seen it be an issue and a barrier to not just employment but housing and so when an individual uh, returns to the community and they're not able to gain successful have uh, successful employment or have stable housing, um, their, their challenges of, of being stable outside of the correctional system becomes even more of of a, cha- of a more of a challenge, mm-hmm. right? There, um, so we want to be able to have fair opportunity and chances for those individuals so they can be a contributing member of society. Um, for many of those communities where these individuals originally reside. There's a loss of particularly men in those communities because they spent this time away, and and that has an impact on children. It has an impact on the stability of the community, the health of the community, and the community's traumatized by the loss of those figures and the loss of those people in their community. Um, you know, we've also looked at uh, women, which is a growing number and a growing segment in our correctional facility. We always always think of the men; they are still a larger percentage of that population. But as far as the percentage of population is increasing it is woman hmm. at a very sky- skyrocketing percentage um and so now we're losing parents in the household and what does that look like Mm -hmm. um if you visit my district there's a facility called the eastern state penitentiary one of our first i've been there i've been there i'm not sure if you've been there recently they have an exhibit on mass incarceration Mm. and in the last couple of years they've taken on this mission to say we're not just this really cool old prison that has the cell of al capone but we're (laughs) going to take on this mission to talk about what corrections and prisons look like in America and then talk about the mass incarceration and impact on our country so you should definitely go see it in the center of their baseball field which is right in the middle of the um, facility there is a life-size larger than life-size chart bar graph that shows the population of of inmates in the world and the United States has what 10% 10% of the world's population, I forget the number exactly, but 25% of the inmate population for the entire world. It ranks, of course, number one when it comes to incarceration. And in Ch- I think China is a very distant second. And to see this in a sort of two story, bar graph in the middle of a field gives you context gives you a lot of context to see that what the prison has also done the eastern state penitentiary has also done is they decided to hire um, formerly formerly incarcerated individuals as tour guides and so you're taking this tour with someone who you may not even imagine have spending time behind bars and in the middle of their tour they may share with you their story um and they and those tour guides range they're young people they're older people they're men women Um, white, black, grew up in the suburbs, grew in in the city, and so they have various experiences of of how they entered that system. What we know is that the criminal justice system for a very long time disproportionately impacted communities of color, and whether it was because of how crimes were graded and those crimes that were most common in those communities or in urban communities, particularly during um, the 80s and 90s, and how that has significantly impacted um, the incarceration, mass incarceration, of nonviolent offenders. Mm-hmm. And those nonviolent offenders, like you said, are coming back yeah, home. Right. And they are— We can either
0: make them more violent in, in prison, right? right, when they come out, or we— They want or to come we, yeah. home. Yeah.
1: Um, what is sad to see is I've, I've been—visited a few of our correctional facilities with the Black Caucus, and we've been to Dallas and to Phoenix, mm. um, to um, Muncie, which is the women's prison, and we've seen the elderly in some of our facilities. I mean, our, the last visit I had at Phoenix was with um, the Gray Panthers, which is you know, a, a sort of um, wording off of Black Panthers, but they call themselves the Gray Panthers. And this is a population of 55 and older mm. in this in this facility, and they're walking with canes and with, you know, um, oxygen tanks and three or four were in wheelchairs. And um, so this is a cost to us as taxpayers to continue to um, house and care for those individuals. And so, um, you know, we need to look strong and hard at, our policies and who we incarcerate and, and what's the cost. So, of taxpayers. So,
0: so uh, under Governor Corbett, uh, with Secretary John Wetzel, who is the one mm-hmm. secretary that's transcended uh, both uh, administrations. Uh, both, yeah, yes. both administrations. Have Have you seen? Uh, the reform started under Governor Corbett, and I know that they've continued. Have you seen those benefits uh, in your community as a result of the policy change? I mean, it's it's rare that we see uh, good things happen in Harrisburg that end up producing good results uh, in our communities. Is this one of those that we can see that yet, or is this still in the works that you think we're going to... I think
1: this is something that we have to keep watching okay. over time. Um, is It is something that... Uh, the, a reform that is going to take several years to see the, the impact and the results in our community. Um, I have a piece of legislation called Fair Chance Housing, which uh, is very similar to the band-a-box concept that we think of for employment, but for housing. Uh, and I know a lot of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle are continuing to, to look at the nuances of criminal justice reform and hopefully we'll get some studies done and look at how Um, it has made some change in in our communities, in our families. Um, A lot of families in Pennsylvania, regardless of where you live, regardless of who you are, have been impacted by uh, criminal justice in Mm -hmm. some way or another. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, in looking at shifting gears a little bit, looking at your materials, you are a strong proponent of raising the minimum wage. And I want to push back a little bit on you on (laughs) this and ask you, give me your explanation. Uh, Because I I think when, particularly in in low-income areas, when you increase that starting wage, um, you decrease uh, employment opportunities, particularly for minorities, uh, low skilled or no skilled uh, folks. Does that not concern you that uh, your community would be negatively impacted if we went from seven and a quarter to 10 or or certainly 12 or 15?
1: Actually, I'm not concerned. Talking to a lot of the employers right in my district, they don't pay that seven and a quarter. So they're already so they're paying, paying above. above that. And they would embrace this. Um, many of the employers, they just they don't think that seven and a quarter is uh, uh, realistic. It's not competitive yeah, in Philadelphia. Right? And so if you want to be competitive as an employer, you have to pay more. And so they embrace the minimum wage increase. Um, every border and state of Pennsylvania has an increased minimum wage. Um, but if
0: the market's already doing it, does that mean well, government I mean, needs to take action then? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That to me is where the market, you know, sets I, the, the market, way. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I also think that that market is also telling us to do something about it. And, and I will tell you, the employers in my district are saying, "Do this." They're behind it. They're supportive of it, and they think that um, I think for, for Philadelphia, they would like to see the surrounding counties do the same.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So, mm-hmm. uh, what what other issues are you uh, uh, working on right now?
1: Right. So. Um, continuing to work on a lot of uh, climate change and environmental issues but from a perspective of environmental justice and some of the issues that we see in urban areas but I think also again across the commonwealth. Um, What's
0: in I I did note environmental justice what can you define that for me what that means? Um,
1: Environmental justice is the impact of environmental policies that disproportionately impact vulnerable communities but that they don't have a voice at the table. So those communities can be described as communities of color, low-income communities, and other communities that don't have a voice at the table. Unfortunately, when we have bad environmental policies, they disproportionately impact those communities first and harder. So, for example, whether we're talking about, if you agree with me, the impact of climate <laughs> change and what that may have if there's increased hurricanes and increased flooding and that that impacts crops or other agricultural um, uh, process that the cost of food would impact those communities first, um, where you may have bad actors. For example, um, I hate to single out any particular industry, <laughs> but let's say a, a a some kind of industry that is polluting air or water that will more than likely be located near a community that is vulnerable, a community of color or a low-income community that doesn't have a voice. Um, if you were to put that same company near a more um, prominent, affluent affluent community, Mm -hmm. they would, it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And so environmental justice is about making sure that um, those communities aren't disproportionately impacted by uh, bad environmental policies and hazards. Um, Those same communities are very much aware of that and and do um, understand the impact of those bad environmental policies. They do have concerns about climate change. They also have a very close relationship, I, I would say, with the earth and with the land. And they may be farmers or they may be folks in the city who garden. Um, they may have a, a family history of working with the land. And so they understand. They may be hunters or fishermen. Um, they understand that if we do one, two, or three things that will impact their environment. I also think the environment is not just trees and flowers and, and those things and water streams. In the city of Philadelphia, the, the environment is the air that we breathe that is very much polluted and the reason why we have high asthma rates in the city of Philadelphia. In the city of Philadelphia, the environment also includes the lead paint that is falling off the ceilings of schools all across the city or the lead paint that are in our old homes. That happens, again, across the Commonwealth. We have beautiful old and historic homes and infrastructure in the commonwealth of pennsylvania those same homes and um, buildings and churches can also be harming us um, whether they have lead paint or other hazards like asbestos and mold so we want to make sure that those places are safe and that's that's an issue i've been working on particularly Mm. around lead Mm -hmm. i have a son who um, was tested to have high levels of lead at an early age and looking at how that even as a family middle income family educated family that we were still um, vulnerable to Um, that exposure Mm. and how many other families are exposed. And I realized it is a hidden danger Mm. um, and that we need to address it. In Philadelphia, there's lead in many of the schools. There was a story about a, a kindergartner who had extremely high levels of lead and they tested his home and tested everywhere else. Turns out it was his class that was um, making him sick and he was actually eating lead paint that was falling from the ceiling onto his desk and he would try to eat the paint chips before his teacher saw it um, and he was doing this the entire school year. Mm-hmm. So there are playgrounds in very affluent communities in Philadelphia that are exposed to lead because of the construction in that neighborhood. So the lead is The lead dust is flying onto the playgrounds because there's so much construction going on and and dirt being pulled and toiled. And so Hmm. all of those things are impacting our communities. I've been a very vocal um, um, opponent of making sure we put dollars and resources to um, remediate those 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 issues and remediate um, particularly the school buildings, but homes and other sources where children may be exposed. If you know, lead can impact brain development. And if we want our children to be successful and at school and and so on, we need to make sure we're not exposing them to lead at such an early age. Um, So I've been looking at those issues um, as a mom and as a legislator, Mm -hmm. looking at issues around, again, things that really do impact our children. So um, in our communities and the other piece on environment, I just introduced a a co-sponsorship memo around zero waste. And uh, there's a whole package that my colleagues have introduced. My bill in that package is uh, will increase fines on illegal dumping in, F- in Philadelphia, but I also think across the Commonwealth we have illegal dumping, whether it's tires or construction debris and these things, folks who don't want to pay the cost to properly dispose of waste and they're doing it all across um, highways and in forests and such, and we need to address that. Uh, mm. um, we see it a lot in Philadelphia, and so we need to find ways to enforce existing um, laws in regards to short dumping, but also increase the fines. Because what I hear from some of the folks who... The contractors. It's cheaper for me to just dump and pay the fine yeah. if I get if caught. I get caught. Yep. If I get yeah. caught, right? Right. right? If I get caught, got to
0: incentivize uh, a better behavior, right? Yes, <laughs> and, and that's by punishing bad behavior a little more severely if uh... occasionally that's what we have to do.
1: <laughs> um, you know, as I,
0: parents, we understand that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did have one other question. I sure. forgot to ask you as we were just talking about. Uh, um, criminal justice reform as well as what's going on in communities. Uh, I know you sit on the professional licensure committee, um, and I know that we tend to erect some arbitrary barriers for entry into things like, particularly in communities like yours where, hey, I want to uh, open up a barber shop, and it makes it very difficult uh, to hang out a shingle to be an entrepreneur. Um, Are those uh, areas that you see that we could have some bipartisan support? Yes,
1: uh? yes, and I do believe that uh, two of my colleagues are looking at this issue. Um, It makes no sense to me that we are training individuals in our correctional system to be a barber or to (laughs) be a plumber or to be all of these things. We have some really great um, sort of vocational kind of programs in the correctional system, but then they come home and many of the professional licensure uh, re- um, leg- legislation and requirements for those same trades, for those same skill sets, where you can be your own entrepreneur, you don't have to, you know, apply for a job. You exactly, you could put a shingle out and start your business, use the skill set that the taxpayers paid yeah, for you right, to gain, right, right. Um, and and do that job. Uh, but yeah, there is um, there's a standard language that exists in most of that. Um, licensing regulations that says if you have, and I probably will misquote it, but a, a drug felony or something um, that is a couple of years—I forget the year timing on it—that you can't, you can't yeah. have that license. It makes no sense to <laughs> me. Um, I know that we should look at, you know, whether it's providing some c- sort of childcare or something where you, you know, you want to be concerned about violent offenses and sure, things like sure. that. But if you're a barber and you had a minor drug offense yeah. let the man cut some hair <laughs> um let him earn a couple dollars yeah. let him put food on the table for his family this is you know they're doing it every day in their facilities i mean in you know our prisoners work they work um they earn very 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 little money while in prison to pay for small incidental items while they're there but they learn and they pick up skills while they're um, incarcerated and then they can't use those yeah, same that, skills yeah well, let's make
0: them get them uh, back right. to work right no, after the same they the skills yeah.
1: that the the system had no problem using while they were incarcerated <laughs> We can't have them use it in in the general society.
0: Well, uh, Representative Bullock, I really appreciate your taking the time. We finally got to sit down, and uh, I'm very glad that we were able to do it and look forward to uh, seeing you uh, uh, continue to press these important issues and uh, wish you all the success. Thanks for joining me on Brews and Views.
1: Thank you for having me, and, and it was a great conversation. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners' Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.